Thank you for joining the Home Church Podcast. For more information, visit us at myhomechurch.org. So here's what I want to do. I'm just going to really quick just share how we got into this, what the Lord's really put on my heart, and then we're going to continue on in this teaching series. I think it's one of the more important series that we have done in a long time because it deeply connects, I think, to the hour that we are living in. The title of the sermon series was Bridal Generation, and this is how it was really birthed. About, uh, this is actually our fifth week, so it was almost about uh, two months ago, I just felt in, inclined to study Matthew 24. And as I was studying Matthew 24, I was there because Jesus speaks a lot about uh, different signs that will begin to emerge that will, will tell us, they'll become markers for his return, his second coming. Now these signs, they, they've been from the beginning since he has ascended, but I definitely feel there's an intensification of them. And so I was just inclined to read them and see, uh, you know, some of the things that Jesus had said. And one of the things that caught my attention is that Matthew 25 is a continuation of Jesus still giving the signs. The, the whole thing, Matthew 24 to Matthew 25, was set in motion by a question that the disciples asked. They said, Master, Rabbi, tell us, what are the signs of your second coming? And he goes through all of them. Earthquakes, pestilence, wars, rumors of wars, a lot of things that we see in a great manner right now. But then in Matthew 25, he continues to teach on it. And a lot of times, but one of, one of the signs that, that Jesus continues to say that I never really connected because I've always stopped at Matthew 24 and said it's over. But Matthew 25, he continues to go into it and he actually gives a parable and he says that the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins. And, he's, and there's a whole message that he gives about how the church needs to be ready by cultivating and buying oil. And we spoke about that a few weeks ago. But what really stuck out to me is that Jesus said at this time, meaning when you see all of these signs of Matthew 24, another sign of my coming is that the church is going to be operating like a bride. And I'm going to be coming back like a bridegroom. And if you actually start to look through the scriptures, you find that this is a heavy emphasis all throughout both Old and New Testament. Revelation twenty two seventeen. the last time the church is ever mentioned, you know how we are defined? As a bride. It says the spirit and the bride say come to the bridegroom. It does not say warriors. It does not say sons and daughters. It doesn't say the body. Now we are all those things. We don't stop being those things. But what it says is the bride. There is something about the approaching of Jesus' return where the church is going to be functioning primarily in bridal identity because Jesus is coming back primarily as a bridegroom. He's, he's always judge. He's always king. But there's something about him coming back as bridegroom, his passion for his people that we're going to see in a way that we've never seen it. Every generation has known Jesus as king, but there's going to be a generation that emerges that knows him as bridegroom king. Hosea, chapter 2, verse 16, he's a prophet in the Old Testament. He prophesied of the, of the Lord's return, of Jesus. He said, in that day, he says, God says, you will no longer call me my master, you will call me my husband. So over and over, there's scriptures that emphasize, again, as we draw near to the Lord's return, that there is a heavy emphasis on the church functioning more and more like a bride. Now, if that confuses you, it confused me for a while. What exactly does that mean? And that's where we've been these last few weeks is saying, okay, we want to be, we want to understand what it means to be rooted in bridal identity. We want to grow in this reality because if this is how the church is going to be functioning more and more, we want to know the voice of a bridegroom. We don't want to get offended. I think many get offended at Jesus being a bridegroom because we misunderstand it. We don't want to be like John's, the disciples in John 6 who when Jesus gave a hard teaching, they got offended and they left. 
I feel many, will, many can get offended by this language, but I want us to really grasp it, understand it, and grow, and grow in it. And so the last thing I just want to share, again, I realize if you've been listening the last few weeks, some of this is repetitive, but I, I know a lot of people haven't been here, and I just want you to understand it. The last thing I want to share is what does it mean to be a bride, right? One of the misunderstandings is we think that means being, we think it emphasizes gender, has nothing to do with gender, all right, just as sonship doesn't exclude women, that's just a, a term used to emphasize a way God wants to relate to us and the fact that we're co-heirs with Christ. Being a bride of Christ does not mean it's the church is acting more and more feminine. Being a bride of Christ is, is, a, is a covenant realm of intimacy. It's an imagery that God gives to share that what he's after is this unique connected with, with our hearts. And so there's something about the church moving in intimacy as the Lord approaches and, and the last thing on this is we've been discussing not just being a bride, but the scriptures say Jesus is coming back for a ready bride. A ready bride. It said over and over. And I believe the way that the Holy Spirit is preparing us for the Lord's return is he's revealing the passion of the bridegroom to us. He's revealing the love of Jesus to us. What love is this? Jesus said with the same love the Father has loved me, so I love you. Which means that that same perfect, intense, unconditional love is being expressed to us. And I believe we're going to step into an hour where we're going to encounter that love in a way we've never encountered it. And beloved, if you look in the scriptures, when you encounter the perfect love like this and you see the passion of the bridegroom Jesus coming for you, it changes you. It changes you. It leads to obedience in a way that you've never obeyed before. Because if we love him, we'll obey. And the reason why we love is because he first loved us. So the more we're encountering his perfect love, it's causing us to love him and obey him. I believe we're going to see purity will arise because our hearts will be so captivated by him who is so passionate for us. Authority, boldness, perfect love casts out fear. See, there's going to be faith. See, the bridal generation, contrary to what many believe, it will not be a weak and powerless church. It is going to be a church that is on fire, full of zeal, ready, alert, bold. They are so secure in the love of Christ that they give up everything for him. And this, I believe, is where we are, where we are heading. So I want you to turn with me in your Bibles first to Psalm 27.4. And if you don't have a Bible, you can uh, go on your... Um, device that you have, look it up. I'm reading out of the ESV, Psalm 27.4. So now that we're all on the same page, if you are interested in going deeper in this, I encourage you to go to the podcast. Again, this is actually our fifth week that we've been in this, and we've been unpacking a lot. And again, I think it's so, so important. But what I want to talk to you today about is, is the beauty. This is a central theme of, of the bride and the bridegroom relationship. It's the beauty of God, or the beauty of the bridegroom. And when you see his beauty, it transforms us. This is a major theme throughout scripture. It is also a major theme in the book Song of Solomon, which is where we have primarily been teaching from. And we'll get into that book and I'll share more on that in a moment. But there's something about as Jesus returns where the church is going to be more and more aware of his beauty. And just follow me for a moment as I just, I just lay this open for us. Isaiah 33, 17, just listen to this. Isaiah prophesied this. He says, to the people of God, when, when Jesus returns, he says, your eyes will see the king in his beauty. So it, it emphasizes his beauty. He prophesied that when Jesus returns in that generation, what the Spirit's going to be emphasizing is the beauty of Jesus. There's something about it that's going to move our hearts. Now you say, what is, what is the beauty of God, right? 
The beauty of God, I think, is twofold. And I want you to really, really catch this. The beauty of God is first and foremost, it's, the, it's his nature. It's his person. It's his attributes. If you want to read a book that's amazing on this, you could read Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer. Man, study how he's holy, he's perfect, he's beautiful, he's kind, he's loving, he's all-knowing, all-present, all-wise. These are things that so easily flow off our lips, but I'm talking about meditating on these so they get deep in your soul, encountering the beauty of his person. The other thing is not just who he is, but it's what he does. It's his works. And you see this primarily in creation first and then redemption. Creation is look around. The heavens declare his glory. You just take a moment, I don't know if you've ever done this, if you watch one of those documentaries or series where they reveal the complexity of our, our inner beings, how just a microscopic cell is, is literally, it's, there's little robots that work within it perfectly, and if one thing's out of place, it all collapses. When you see this, it points to the beauty of the creator, and it stirs your heart. And then it's in the works of redemption, how he has restored everything that we have lost. And whether it's who he is or what he does, ultimately this is what it comes down to. Whether it's who he is or what he does, it ultimately is boiled down to this. It's found in the person of Jesus Christ. And so I believe in this coming age, what we're going to see is more and more we're going to be encountering the beauty of the bridegroom. Who he is and what he does. Now why is this important? Because think about it in the realm of a natural marriage. You need to find your partner beautiful. You need to find them attractive. It's, it, it fosters faithfulness. It creates passion, excitement. And there's, a, there's an application to that. To find Jesus beautiful is not an essential way. What it means is you are in awe of who he is. When you see his nature, his character, it fascinates you. It, it so deeply touches your heart. When you see the works that he does, when you see creation or redemption, you are literally preoccupied with this. And I think this is absolutely essential because we were created to be fascinated by God. Very important. You were created to be moved by his beauty, to be filled with awe and wonder when you see God rightly. You see him for who he is and what he does. And if you do not see God in his beauty, if you're not fueled by this fascination, what happens is you will go looking somewhere else for it. I mean, the entertainment industry plays on man's desire to be fascinated, to be awed. And you'll never be able to break away from counterfeit fascinations until you have seen the real beauty, the genuine beauty in God himself. And so the result is what I think is that, I know I could say this from, from my own life, I feel is that many would characterize the Christian life as it's boring. There's a, there's a misconception that we have to break, which is Satan is exciting and God's really boring. That's a lie from the pit of hell. It says that there are pleasures forevermore at his right hand. He is fullness of joy. The only thing Satan offers is counterfeit. It always leaves us more broken. And we'll go into that more next week, but a lot of times we think that God is boring because we don't take time to actually see and meditate on his beauty. But if we would do that, we'd be fascinated. And the other stuff that had a pull on our life would just begin to break off. If you're not fascinated with God, what I find is you become spiritually bored you become spiritually dull, you become spiritually passive, and what happens in my own life is you become more susceptible to temptation. You just, we just have to call it for what it is, right? The reason why I engaged in drugs or whatever it may be, immorality, pornography, is because we're looking for something. We, if we're fascinated with God, these things begin to break off of our life. 
And so what God does is the way he answers the craving of our heart to see this type of beauty is he reveals the beauty of Jesus to us. What God does is that he liberates us from the tyranny of inferior pleasures by revealing the superior pleasure of Christ to us. What God does is he conquers our hearts through the knowledge, releasing the knowledge of Jesus Christ. He reveals Jesus who's so beautiful when you actually see him rightly. It so moves you that you actually willfully say, I want to submit and yield my heart to this one. I'll give up everything. This is actually how God leads us. And this will be a primary mark of the bridal generation. They're going to know the beauty of their bridegroom, and this is what's fueling them. Teresa of Avila, who is a, a Spanish noblewoman back in the 16th century, she had a quote that literally sums up everything that I'm sharing here. She said this. She said, his beauty, Christ's beauty, makes me freely surrender the rights of my life. This is the gospel message. When you see his beauty and who he is and what he's done, the only natural response is I will give up everything to follow him. The denial of self becomes, it's not costly anymore as it once was because what you have is something so far superior to what you are laying down. God has more for us than simply gritting our teeth and avoiding evil. But for most, this becomes a defining mark of Christianity. It's all about just learning how to say no to the bad things. Now, that's a great starting point, but there's another place God wants to lead us into. It's not just learning to say no to bad things. It's plunging into the depths of God. Salvation is not just only being forgiven. It's now you have union with Christ, and he wants to fascinate your heart. So, so critical. It's a, comp a completely different type of mindset than what I... What I uh, thought when I was first saved, I believe the bridal generation, as I said before, is not going to be marked as, like I said, weak. It's going to be mature because we're, we're thankful that we've been forgiven. You can't enter it without that. We're aware of it, but we're moving into a depth with Christ where we're learning to be moved by his love now. We're learning to be captivated by who he is, and this is what fuels us. God does not drive us by duty. He draws us by beauty. Very important. A lot of my early walk is I was driven by duty, and then I realized this is the counterway. This is man's way. That's religion. He draws me by his beauty. I used to force to give up things, and I just white-knuckled my walk with God. But when I started to really sit before him and make my priority gazing upon his beauty, it was easy to lay down things. This is going to be the characterization of the bridal generation. They're aware of his beauty. He does not lead us by fear but irresistible attraction. Here's the picture. If you've ever gone into a, an art gallery, this is the picture the Lord gave me. If you go into an art gallery, there's many beautiful paintings, right? But then you come up to that one that catches your eye, and you stop, and you give it your attention. And as you see it, you begin to move closer to that painting. And as you move closer, you're not looking at anything else because you're actually getting lost in the beauty of it. You're not even thinking of yourself anymore. You're admiring every little detail. This is how his beauty moves us. It's as, as he reveals Jesus, he begins to woo us. And all of a sudden, before we know it, his beauty is drawing us nearer and nearer and nearer. And the things that I tried so hard to break off in my own strength, they're just breaking off now. Because I am so set on him. Psalm 119.18, the psalmist says, Open my eyes that I may see the wonderful things of your law. The wonderful things. <laughs> I wonder how many of us think of God's law, his ways as wonderful. That means delightful, pleasant. 
You know what religion says? Religion says this, do this and don't do that. And if you don't do the right thing, you'll go to hell. But the gospel says if you catch one glimpse of his beauty, you will never be the same. And that's what we're moving into, I believe. And that's why I've been speaking with Caesar, Brittany, where we want to put together some prayer and worship sets for the primary purpose of just gathering around his, his person and gazing on his beauty because this is what marks and changes man. So let me just read this scripture with you, Psalm 27.4. It says this. This is David speaking. He says, one thing I have asked of the Lord. I love that. One thing above everything else. Here's my one thing. One thing I've asked of the Lord or one thing I've desired that I will seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Why? To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. David literally says, here's the one thing I'm after. It's not just intimacy. It's not just communion. We emphasize that it's beautiful. But what he's saying is, here's the one thing I'm preoccupied with. I want to know his beauty. He says, this is this one thing I seek. This one thing I desire. He's saying, this is my chief pursuit. This is the primary thing that occupies my attention is that I want to see him. I am locked into this. What is it? All the days of my life, he says, all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. All the days of my life. This is David's highest goal. This is what he's going after. David had went through many seasons, seasons where he was a young shepherd boy and had no audience, seasons where he was a prosperous king, seasons where he was on the run being chased by Saul. And what he's saying is, all the days of my life, in every season, whether in prosperity or adversity, he says, this is the one staple I come back to. I am set on seeing the beauty of the Lord. This is an anchor for my life. There's something David is giving us insight into that this is what helped him to be a man after God's own heart. And I think just sadly, a lot of times we, we miss the beauty of God because we're gathering around so many other things other than his presence. We gather around the gifting of man rather than the presence of God. And many just leave spiritually bored because we're not saying, look, we're here for one reason. We're going to stay here until we see Jesus rightly because when you do, you'll never be the same again. I believe God is honestly really urging us in this upcoming season to not just be content with memorizing a few Bible verses, not just learning a few ministry or leadership skills, but really to make this our obsession to say, God, I want to go deeper in your beauty. I want to shift my lifestyle to prioritize sitting with you, meditating on who you are, what you do. That's what David said, and it changed his life. So turn with me to Song of Solomon chapter 5. I'll share this scripture with you and just kind of leave you with this as we work through this scripture. Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verses 9 through 16. It's one of the most beautiful portions of scripture that reveals the beauty of Jesus, the beauty of the bridegroom. Now, the Song of Solomon, as you're turning there, we're in chapter 5, verse 9 through 16. Again, I realize some of you have not been with us, so that's why I'm just repeating some things here. But this is a book that we have primarily been working through. It's a book that's often been overlooked. It's a book that's often been misunderstood. It's even been rejected. Again, it, some get offended by this. 
It's a short book in the Old Testament, and it's a story, a love story between a husband and a soon-to-be bride. It's between Solomon and a Shulamite bride. Now, in the natural, you could use this story to actually um, uh, deal and teach on natural marriage. That would be appropriate. But we know that all scripture ultimately points to Jesus. And so the spiritual interpretation is that Jesus is the true bridegroom and the church is the true bride. And that's the way we've been addressing this and approaching this. As we work through this book, we've been seeing the bride representing us and Solomon, the bridegroom, representing Jesus. And this is just helping us get established and rooted in what it means uh, to be a bride and bridal identity. And so I want to read verses 9 through 16. And what we're going to see is an incredible description from the bride, from the church, of Jesus' beauty. She's actually going to lay out 10 descriptions, and we're just going to gaze on his beauty a little bit this morning. This is just to provoke you, to stir your hearts, and ultimately a teaching is never exhaustive. It's just to fan a flame, and then you go deeper with the Lord in this. But she's going to list 10 physical descriptions about the bridegroom. It's the church giving 10 descriptions about Jesus. She's going to start at his head and work down to his toes. Literally, she's going to stop at the end and say, he is altogether lovely. That's her summary statement after she has described this. Before we get into those descriptions, that which starts in verse 10, I wanted to read verse 9 to you. There's one other significant, or there's really two other significant groups in this Song of Solomon. There's the watchmen who represent spiritual leaders. And then there are the daughters of Jerusalem who represent believers but not mature believers. Now just, just follow me for a moment so you catch what's about to happen because this is so beautiful. The bride has gone through a hard season. We actually shared some of this last week where there was a disconnect in her relationship with the bridegroom. So it would be like us going through a season of dryness or staleness. We feel like we're not really connecting with God. And it says, when she went to the watchman to ask, have you seen my bridegroom? They actually beat her. And it's representative of, of spiritual leaders. She was actually, rather than being encouraged, she was condemned. Probably something like, how are you going through this? You should be stronger than this. You should be better than this. And she was actually beaten up by the spiritual leaders. But her response to that, her response to that, to that mistreatment is she said to the daughters of Jerusalem, to these younger believers in the faith, she said, have you seen my beloved? She says, for I am lovesick. The greatest pain she experienced was not being mistreated from the church. The greatest pain, she says, honestly, I don't really care about that. Here's what I care about. I need to connect again with my husband. I need to connect again with the bridegroom. It's the church saying, I need to connect with Jesus. And when they see this response, it deeply moves them. And it leads them to ask this question, and I want you to catch this. Look at this in verse 9. They say this. They say, what is your beloved more than another beloved? Oh, most beautiful among women, what is your beloved more than another beloved that you thus adjure us? In other words, what they're saying is, what is so special about your husband? It would be like someone coming up to you who's younger in the faith saying, what is so special about Jesus? I just watched you get taken advantage of. I watched you be mistreated. And you're not turning into sulking, self-pity. You're not turning into depression. The only thing you're saying is my heart is aching for him. What do you know about Jesus that I don't know about him? I want, I want, you, to, I want you to catch this. I, I think this is really, really critical. Passion for Jesus is one of the greatest things that we have in ministry. And all of us are called into ministry. In other words, it is not about so much about how wise you are. It's not so much about how, 
how skilled you are. It's not how great the songs sound. It's not how well the drama was played out. What moves and stirs the hearts of people is when they encounter someone whose heart is burning for Jesus. When these daughters of Jerusalem saw this, this bride go through what she went through and still say, what I want more than anything is him, this moved their hearts. It provoked them to say, we clearly don't know Jesus like you know Jesus. The Lord was put a question in my heart I just want to place before you. When was the last time, right? I didn't really think about it. When's the last time that somebody pulled me aside and they may have worded it in a very different way. They may have been a believer, have nothing, they don't know anything about Lord, but when is the last time someone pulled you aside or me aside and said, hey, I need to ask you something. Can you, can you explain to me who Jesus is? Because when I see the consistency, when I see the consistency in your life, there's something that you're walking in. My goodness, it's all just coming apart. That's it. It's all good. We can probably just leave it down if we need to. But it's someone saying, listen, I want to I wanna walk with you. I want to journey with you. How do you carry yourself before the Lord? Because there's something that you're walking and there's something that you know that I have never experienced. And I, I honestly believe this is, again, a mark of the bridal generation. They have such passion and fire in their heart that they provoke younger ones or those that are in staleness and coldness to want to pursue Jesus and the thing that they're walking in. I believe, especially in this hour, that people are fed up with memorized responses. They are fed up with catchy phrases. They don't just need a leader that's well-trained. That's great, but they need someone who has seen the beauty of Jesus, someone who has encountered him, someone that has walked with him, someone that when they speak, it's not just a testimony, but their life drips with the substance of what they're speaking about. When they say he's everything, you can see it in their eyes. And they say, this person has been somewhere. I want to know what they know. I think the bridal generation is going to be lovesick messengers that have been raised up who know his beauty and rightly communicate it to the world. A.W. Tozer said something fascinating. He said this. He said, the church waits for the tender voice of the saint who has penetrated the veil and has gazed with inward eye upon the wonder that is God. The church is waiting for someone, not who has just memorized things about Jesus, but who has actually walked into what Christ has made available. And they've seen him, and they've walked with him, and they've beheld his beauty. And because of that, when they speak, you say, man, I've got to know Jesus this way. I, I just pray this is a mark for us as, as the body of Christ. I want to point out something else in verse 9. When they say, what is your beloved more than another beloved? Why are you so loyal? Why do you love him so much? They say, oh, most beautiful among women. And I think this is fascinating because, again, it's what I just shared. They are saying you are distinguished and set apart from everyone else. In other words, they saw a beauty on her life. What beauty is that? They saw the radiance of new life. They didn't, just, they didn't just hear someone say, I'm lovesick and adopt the language of intimacy. They said, you are beautiful. There's something on you. I see the new creation budding forth from you. Guys, you can't manufacture this. You, you can't study this. It's being with Jesus. You, you can't bypass this and try to earn it another way. And they saw it on her life. You know what's so amazing? The beauty, the beauty that Jesus possesses. Guess what happens when you start beholding his beauty? You start radiating that beauty. In Isaiah 61, one of the most beautiful scriptures of Jesus, 
how he came with a mandate unto the Holy Spirit to set the captives free, to, to, to bind up the brokenhearted, to liberate, right, to save, to heal, deliver. One of the things it says under the Holy Spirit is that he came to bring beauty for ashes. One of his primary mandates under the anointing of the Holy Spirit is to impart his beauty into the brokenness of your life. And as you gaze on his beauty, it starts changing you. Psalm 90:17, Moses cried out and said, Lord, let your beauty be upon us. So as we become a people who really say this is going to be our primary activity, to get before him and to know him rightly, we start reflecting that beauty to other people. And the last thing on this verse 9 I want to share that's, I think, critical is that the daughters of Jerusalem in the natural were, they were inhabitants of the holy city. Again, it's widely believed that they represent believers, just maybe not in the most mature sense. They were still young. And the point is this, is that they were mature, they were believers, but they had not yet seen his beauty. It's possible to be in the house of God and still never really see his beauty. It's possible to be born again and really have never penetrated the veil and had a vision of who he is where it's wrecked your life in the most beautiful way. It's possible to come every single Sunday to be surrounded by family who love the Lord, but you yourself are still scratching your head and say, how do you give up everything? How do you lay everything down? I don't understand. I've never seen that. And what's so amazing is that at the end of all of this, they're actually going to say, after she describes his beauty, she's, the, the next question they ask is, well, where do we find him? Now they say, we need to know him. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to work through these 10 verses I'm not going to, or these 10 descriptions, some of them I'll go a little bit more in depth on, others I'll just read quickly, and we'll, uh, we'll leave it here. But are you guys with me? Song of Solomon, chapter 5, we're going to look at verse 10. She's about to say, you know why I'm lovesick even when I can get mistreated? You know what fuels me? You know why I'm separated? You know why you see radiance of new life? Because I know his beauty, and I'm going to tell you about his beauty. This is the bridal generation, and she begins with first a general characteristic. She says this, she says, my beloved... This is the church speaking of Jesus. My beloved is radiant and ruddy, distinguished among 10,000. Now you got to bear with me. Some of these things may sound strange if this is your first time. It's very symbolic. Uh, you can use scripture to interpret scripture, or if you understand the context of the culture, that will help you. And she begins by saying, my beloved is radiant and ruddy. What does it mean to be radiant? It's to send forth light. It's brilliance. It's his holiness. It's the church speaking of Jesus saying he is absolutely radiant. It speaks of his divine nature. But then what it also says is that my beloved is ruddy. Jesus is not only radiant. 1 Timothy 6.16 says he dwells in unapproachable light. He's so set apart. But then it says that he's also ruddy. Ruddy may, may be a little bit uncommon in our language, but it means to have a reddish red color in your face. It speaks to uh, someone full of life or passion. And the redness represents the blood. So not only is Jesus radiant, holy, set apart, but the ruddiness speaks to his bloody passion for us. So the one who dwells in unapproachable light has made himself approachable by shedding his blood for us. I mean, I could just stop here and just be filled with wonder at the fact that Jesus is radiant and ruddy. He's divine and human. He has laid down his life so that you can have new life. Just listen to this scripture, Revelation 4, 2 and 3. Revelation 4 is widely considered the greatest description on Jesus' beauty, God's beauty. 
And here's my plug. If you want to know more, come to the Revelation study. <laughs> we'll be there. Uh, we'll be in Revelation 4 in another week or so. But I'm just sharing one part real quick. Just listen to this. John, who, who gives this revelation of the throne room, he says, At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald and circled the throne. John said, I had a vision of God on his throne, and he said there was light radiating from him, jasper, ruby, and emerald. These colors that radiate from him reflect his nature. The jasper is diamond-like, which speaks to his beauty and truth. The ruby is red, which speaks to his passion and his zeal for us. And the emerald is green, which speaks to the, the one who makes all things new. And so forever he's seated on the throne with this beauty that's radiating from him. John, I love this, and this is for all of us to really grasp. John said, I was in the spirit when I received this revelation. In other words, the spirit is what led him to see the beauty of Jesus in this way. And do you know what 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10 says? It says that the spirit of God searches out the deep things of God to reveal it to you. In other words, the spirit that is in you wants to reveal the beauty of Jesus to you. He wants to show you Jesus rightly. He wants to take you on the greatest treasure hunt of your life and explore the riches of who God is. But I can tell you this, what the Lord has said to me, you will not, you will not experience this on the run. It's not something you just tap in and tap out. To see the beauty of Jesus means it becomes our primary focus like David. We say, my one thing, my, my main priority in life is I'm going to gaze upon his beauty. And so it says, my beloved is radiant and ruddy, distinguished among 10,000. Distinguished in, in the Hebrew means to raise up like a banner. And so when armies would go into battle, they would have a banner. Now the multitudes would kind of blend in, but the banner would stick out. Jesus is, is like a banner raised among the multitude. He's set apart. If you were here a few weeks, or actually months ago, when we, were, uh, when we first started online, if you were listening to it, there was something I shared that I need to repeat because it's just it's too good not to. Uh, Charles Spurgeon made a comment on this. If you read the King James Version and you read this portion of Scripture, it says that my beloved is white and ruddy. He's the chiefest among 10,000. And Charles Spurgeon made a comment and said, in the English language, there's no such word as chiefest. And this is what he said regarding this. Spurgeon said, there is no such thing as chiefest. But such is the weight of Christ's perfection. He breaks down vocabulary and causes men to make up words they have never known to articulate something they have never seen. He is the chiefest among 10,000. What do you see, John? I, I don't know. It's just, he's the chiefest. Like, whatever you want to put next to him, he's just better. He's more glorious. He's distinguished from 10,000. 10,000 what? Whatever you want to put next to him. 10,000 bottles of wine could never exhilarate your heart like the perfect love of the bridegroom. 10,000 vacation homes could never give you the internal rest that Jesus could give you. 10,000 counselors will never shepherd you and lead you like the wonderful counselor. 10,000 shepherds pale in comparison to the good shepherd. 10,000 physicians could never do what the great physician does. 10,000 kings will all bow their knee before the king of kings. 10,000 pills to deal with anxiety will never give you the peace that the Prince of Peace gives you. 
What is he compared to? 10,000? Whatever you put before him, Jesus is distinguished, set apart. Do you know the beauty of him? Do you know the one who is radiant, ruddy, set apart, distinguished from 10,000? Let's continue. He says, or she says, his head is the finest gold. His locks are wavy, black as raven. Head speaks to leadership. She's speaking of the leadership of Jesus. Gold speaks to divine. And the fact that it's the finest gold means it's, it's pure. It's without mixture. What the bride is saying is that if you look to the leadership of Jesus, it's God leading you and it's perfect. You can trust in his leadership. Earlier in the book of Song of Solomon, it says that his banner over us is love. You can yield your life. Even when he leads you in a way that you did not expect, you can still submit because his leadership is absolutely perfect. And then it says about his hair, it says that his, his locks are wavy and his hair is black as a raven. You say, this sounds kind of bizarre. <laughs> locks or hair in the Bible refer to devotion. For example, Samson took a Nazarite vow and he didn't, grow, he didn't cut his hair. It was a sign of devotion to God. Sometimes in fasting and mourning, people would shave their head. And this was a sign, again, of, of devotion. They were responding to God. And here it says that his locks are wavy and black, which means it's speaking about his devotion to God and to us. Hair that is wavy and black is, represents someone who's young, someone who's alive, someone who's energetic, versus someone whose hair would be more thinning and gray, right? So Jesus' leadership is perfect, and what it's saying is he never grows weary. He never grows tired. He never gets burnt out of you coming to him. You could come again and again and again, and Jesus never says, now I'm frustrated with you. He loves when you come to him. His hair, his locks are wavy and black. Verse 12, his eyes are like doves beside streams of water, bathed in milk, sitting beside a full pool. What does this mean? His eyes are like doves. Doves, doves represent companionship, love. Do you know that doves actually, they, uh, they have one mate so they're faithful. When it said, when it's speaking of his eyes, it says his, he's faithful to you. Even when we are unfaithful, our bridegroom king is faithful to us. Even when we let him down, we can count on him. The fact that it's streams of water and milk speak to purity and holiness and speaks to cleanliness, which means a judge, right? A judge can have all the facts, but a judge can still misjudge the case because they judge from an impure heart. Jesus knows all the facts and he makes decisions from a pure heart. He knows rightly and his discernment is right. Verse 13 says, his cheeks, his cheeks are like beds of spices, mounds of sweet smelling herbs. Cheeks represent emotions. And what she's saying is that his emotions, when I see who he is, it's pleasant, it's good. Contrary to what most people think, and how I've often viewed God, when God sees you in Christ, he's not primarily angry or sad when he looks at you. We'll speak about this more next week. Most people think that God is on the verge of continually kicking them out of the kingdom of God. That's not a lie. He actually rejoices over you and the fact that you've been washed in the blood. And so they're saying when we see the emotions of God, it moves us. Isaiah 56 says this. It's a prophetic word about Jesus and his cheeks. Listen to this. It says, he says, I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. 
No wonder his cheeks are lovely. It's the one who, when they pulled out his beard, he willfully offered himself. The humility of Jesus, our bridegroom king. I love the next part. It says, his lips, we knew this would be part of it. We just go for it. His lips are lilies, dripping liquid myrrh. This is one of my favorite expressions in this entire thing about Jesus. The fact that Jesus' lips drip, or it first says his lips are lilies. Lilies are purity, beauty, and grace. When Jesus walked around, they said over and over, they were astonished at the grace of the things that he spoke. There was such life over the words of Jesus. But not only is his words like lilies, it says it also drips liquid myrrh. Myrrh was used for burial. So his lips are grace and also death. And you say, well, that's strange. What does that mean? This is so beautiful. It means that when Jesus would go around and say things like this, your sins are forgiven, go in peace. Pick up your mat and walk and a person would be healed. Believe in me and you'll have eternal life. What it means is the grace that's dripping from that is only because he paid a price for it. So as he speaks grace, death also drips from his lips because it's saying that his death purchased the very statement that he's speaking over you. The only reason you can get up and walk if you're sick is because his death purchased healing. The only reason you can have wholeness is because his death purchased that. So as he speaks and grace flows, also there's the reminder of he's the one who purchased that for us. I think it's so beautiful. Verse 14, I'll share these last few quickly. He says about Jesus, his arms are rods of gold set with jewels. This speaks to his works. They're beautiful but they're also costly. It means Jesus is fully able to accomplish the will of God. It means he won't stop halfway. He won't fail. He won't let you slip. He's enough to keep you, stay focused on him. And it says his body is polished ivory, bedecked or decorated with sapphire. The body, the body, the word is the same word used for belly. It speaks to inward being, which means that, again, his inner emotions, his compassion, the way he feels towards us, it's like polished ivory. To polish or carve ivory was very rare. It was a tough skill. So it's saying that the way that he feels, who he is, he's rare. There's no one like him. He's beautiful, majestic, all these things. There's, There's no one else like Jesus. And verse 15 says, his legs are alabaster columns set on bases of gold, which means legs represent his ways and the way he accomplishes his purposes. It's beautiful. He's strong. He's able. It says in the last verse here in verse 15, it says his appearance is like Lebanon, choice as the cedars, which means, again, he's strong, immovable, unshakable. Even in a, in a season of our life where everything seems to be chaotic, Jesus is unshakable. And finally, verse 16, she says his mouth is most sweet. This means that mouth represents intimacy. She's saying Intimacy with Jesus is so sweet because it's everything that we desire. And her last statement, her summarizing statement, the church's statement about Jesus is that he is all together desirable or lovely. This is my beloved and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. I'll ask the worship team to come back up. As she describes all these things from head to toe, Her last statement is just fascinating. Once she says, this is my beloved and this is my friend. Jesus said, I no longer call you servants, I now call you my friends. 
the one who's distinguished, set apart, has made a way for us to be his friend. A servant-based relationship is one that's based on tasks. A friend-based relationship is just that. It's based on union. It's based on relationship. And Jesus says, you're no longer just servants. Now you're my friends. But this one statement just, I just thought was absolutely amazing. She says, he is altogether desirable. Jesus is altogether lovely. Something that is altogether, what does that mean? Altogether means totally, completely, taking all things into consideration. Lovely means exquisitely beautiful, inciting affection. So what this is saying is that as we grow in bridal identity, we're going to find Jesus altogether lovely, meaning when we see every part of his being, it's going to incite affection. It's going to woo us. It's going to cause us to want to give him even more of ourselves. You know, there are some things, there are some things that are beautiful from one angle, but if you look at it from another angle, you say, oh my goodness, that's not what I thought. I think about my wife who tries on a, a certain dress. One angle, she looks in the mirror, says, this is amazing. She turns the other side and says, that's not beautiful anymore. Some things are beautiful from one angle, but not from another. Some, still is, because she's beautiful. Some, some, <laughs> some. Some things, some things are beautiful from a distance, but when you get up close, you say, ah, that's not what I thought it was. Some things are beautiful when they're younger, but as they get older, it kind of fades away. But Jesus, Jesus is altogether lovely. No matter the distance, no matter the angle, no matter the time, he will forever and eternally be the perfect one. He will forever be the one that our hearts were made to love. And as I shared before, I think we're moving into a time more than ever where the church is going to be operating as a bride. We're going to encounter his beauty. We're going to know his beauty. We're going to see it in a way that we've never seen it before. And I just encourage you, today is just merely to provoke your heart to really go deeper with him on a personal level. To really take time to say, Lord, I want to be like David. I want my, my chief pursuit, my primary my primary thing, my one thing, to gaze upon your beauty. As a body, we need to figure out, we're talking, like I said before, figuring out more ways to gather around this one thing because we need it more than anything else. And I think in this time that there's so much shaking going on, this, this bridal generation, these lovesick messengers, man, they're going to be unshakable. They're going to be so confident in the beloved identity. They'll go out no matter how intense the pressure is. So for those of you who'd like, you can stand. For those of you who are able, I just want to close us here. We're going to continue to play a song of worship, but once I'm done praying, you're more than welcome to stay with us and engage in some worship. But I just want to pray for us. If there's someone personally who has never encountered Jesus, man, after, after this, you can come up to me personally. I would love to pray with you if if the beauty of Jesus and what we're sharing today sounds foreign, even as a believer, you just say, man, I want to go deeper. Well, we can pray for you. Yeah. Jesus. Oh, how we need to see your beauty. As Isaiah prophesied, the king is coming in his beauty. Oh, that we could be like the Shulamite bride 
no, no matter what we walk through, Lord, our greatest yearning would be to be with you, to see you more, to stay connected with you. I pray, God, that from this place that there's something is released and imparted. Even if we don't feel a single thing, Lord, just truth has just broken off lies. Truth has broken off distractions. Truth has broken off slothfulness and putting off time with you. And I just pray, God, that our hearts would be pierced with just a desire to say, I want to spend more time with you. I want people around me to pull me aside because they see a consistency in my walk. They see a fire in my walk. And they want to know, what do I don't know about Jesus? Tell me what you know that I don't know. So God, I pray that you would just release that and seal it in Jesus' name. And I pray for any single person here that doesn't know you. Holy Spirit, you would encounter them here. They would come to yield their life to you, Lord. And you would set them free from every inferior pleasure. And show them true pleasure in you, Jesus. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Despite the distractions, it's all good. We worship Jesus. So again, feel free to stay with us in worship. If not, we'll, we'll be in touch with you this week on what next Sunday will look like if we're here or not. But we love you guys. If there's anyone who needs prayer specifically, I'll be up here and, uh, and we can pray as well, all right? God bless you guys.
the sign part. <laughs> 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 <laughs>